Today, we start a brand new series called What on Earth Am I Here For? What on Earth Am I Here For? And um, one of the things that I get asked a lot as a pastor, and it's asked in many different ways, is really what is our purpose in life? Why are you here on this earth? And nobody wants to go through life and, and get to the end of it and feel like, man, I, well, you know, I just existed. Well, I did a few things that were good, but I don't know if I ever really lived. No, you know, no one lives on their deathbed and go, man, I wish, you know, I, nobody wants to say, I wish I would have, I wish I could have, I wish I should have. Because we're here now, and regardless if you're just starting out and maybe you're in your teens or you're in your 20s, but you might be in your 50s, 60s, and 70s, and you, you, you might think you're kind of on the, the downslope, not in God's kingdom, and you could have purpose you have vision and you can have all these things you can do in your life. And sometimes it's hard to figure that out. So this series really is designed to help us kind of figure out what on earth am I here for? What is my purpose in life? I want to help you do that and see your purpose through the lens of scripture. If you have your Bibles, we're going to read um, two verses and it's going to be found in Ephesians chapter one. So if you're new to this Bible or Church, um, the Bible is not a book; it's a collection of books, and and the collection of books is split up primarily into two main parts. There's the Old Testament, there's a New Testament. We're going to be in what's called the New Testament. It starts off Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it kind of walks through the life and history of the local church and this kind of the start of the new birth of the local church through Acts, and then it starts getting into some really interesting scriptures and some um, uh, they call letters or epistles from a man named Paul, who was a Pharisee at the time, which means he was like a professional religious person. Have you ever met any of those? They still exist because <laughs> you meet them and they they look at you crazy without seeing they're crazy. How many y'all? Yeah, y'all, y'all can. So now you do know them. Okay. And uh, he was like that. And then he had a moment with Jesus, changed his whole life, and became a church planner. And he started writing these books, these letters that we, we see now really encompass two thirds of the New Testament. And Paul writes a letter specifically to the church that uh, he started in, in a place called Ephesus. And um, I, I brought up a, a picture, just kind of a map to show you kind of context is important because I want to kind of give you an idea of what it was like back then. So this is kind of back in the area in the time of, of Paul's day. And he's preaching to a port city in a place called Ephesus right there. He's writing a letter to them. And it's interesting because um, this city is really important to Paul. He spends three years there. He doesn't spend that many, that much time in all these letters and places. He just did that in Rome. He didn't do that in Galatia. He didn't do that in Corinth. But in Ephesus, this was like home for him. This is a big deal. And in a lot of letters that Paul writes, you see a theme. What he's trying to do is correct doctrine. That's not really his big theme in Ephesians. Ephesians, his big theme is, is making sure the church knows why they exist. If you go look at it, it's his big. It's a big deal to him. So he writes this letter, um, focused on helping them with their purpose. So we're going to read first. Uh, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter one, and verse seventeen. So y'all have the context. Isn't that important? Isn't that interesting? Kind of see now you read it. Now you kind of know what he's doing, right? And so he says this. He says, "I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that's important that you understand." Paul highlights and uses family language. Everybody say family. Family language. Father is family. He's not a glorious dictator. He's not a glorious slave master. He's not a glorious boss. Come on. He's a glorious father. 
is he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He says he wants you to understand and get revelation, not information. He wants you to take this idea and then make it personal to you. This is important. That you, number one, that you know him better. If I say no, you got to know him better. And he goes on to verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. If I say enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. Everybody say called. And that the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Everybody say inheritance. God gives us these, these really four steps and five overarching principles and purposes in our life through Paul and his letter to Ephesus that we are going to unpack over the next five weeks. And so here's my, 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 my request. My request would be, give me five weeks with you. Prioritize the next five weeks. If you prioritize the next five weeks with our church and with me, I believe the Lord will answer your question, what on earth are you here for? Why are you on this earth? And if you do that, if you make a commitment, I think God's going to show up in the process. And so today, I'm going to talk to you about the first purpose. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord. I thank you that today, God, you are doing something so unique in this place. All of this has been a dream. All of this has been a, um, all of this has been a, a fulfillment of your wishes and your purpose in our life and in my life and in the lives of your people. Lord, I, I pray that as we start this new school year, as we look into this new new step, this new season. God, I pray you would show up. You show up. Get me out of the way. Let's just be a church that makes much of Jesus. And that you would smile at us in Jesus' name. And everybody say, amen, amen, amen. Uh, well, I wanted you to know, first and foremost, it's here. Uh, for those of you who don't know, fall baseball season in Little League is here. And I realized that uh, very recently this last week because we started having games. And I don't know if you know anything about your pastor, but I want to be the kindest person in the world. I want to be the most loving person in the world. I want to pretend like I don't really care if anybody wins or loses in Little League, but it's just not the person that I am. And I realized that most of my time in Little League, and I love baseball primarily because I played it twice a year all the way up through high school. And so I love that game. It's my favorite sport. I love what, uh, what it can be and what it does. And one of the reasons I love it so much is because I like the developmental process of seeing um, the kids grow up and learn how to play baseball. And so I have kids right now. I have three, I have five boys, for those of you who don't know. And I have three that are, my three youngest are in baseball. My six-year-old, my nine-year-old, my 12-year-old. And my six-year-old is um, at the point where he's really learning just the basics and the fundamentals of, of baseball. And so if you guys don't know this, I thought I'd show a little diagram of a baseball diamond. I just want to give, this is important to the context of the message. I promise you I'm going to come back to Jesus. Just saying, just where you are like, I thought this was a Bible church. It is. All right, so, so, this is kind of the basic diamond that you would see in any baseball field. You have multiple positions on the field, and you have multiple areas to play. And what I noticed about baseball is if you don't know anything about baseball, um, you can get lost real quickly. There's positions to play, and everybody on the team is relying that you would do your position well. 
Like you're on a team, and if I'm on third, I need you who is on first to know how to do first. And I need, if I'm on first, I need you who is in second to know how to do second. If you're in left field, we need the pitcher to do well. We need the catcher to do well. Everybody's got a position to play in. But when you're in six years old and you're in that little, 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 little league, all of those positions disappear because they don't know what they're doing. And so I'll put my son. Has anybody done this before? Has anybody done little league and baseball? Raise your hand if you've had baseball with kids. Okay, good. I'll put my kid up on first. Say, go ahead. And the ball will be hit. And baseball miraculously turns from baseball into soccer. Because the ball will be hit and they'll all chase the ball. Has anybody seen it? Has anybody seen it? They'll chase it. And I'm in the sidelines because I'm not allowed to be in the dugout because the umpire asked me to leave. And so I'm on the sidelines hidden behind another person, another parent, because I wasn't supposed to be there. And I'll be screaming, stop running after the ball. Play your position. Has anybody done that? Has any dad screamed before at a baseball field? And the reason I'm saying that is not to be mean to them is because when they get out of position, the team does not win. And when the team does not win, you do not win. And I'm not saying winning is everything, but it's something. <laughs> for those of you who like the participation, sort, you know, grateful for you who give your kids ice cream every time they lose a game by 20. That ain't my strategy. <laughs> but what I told my son is I said, here's what first base does. I went to first base with him. Here's what it does. He stays right here. The ball goes right here. And then if they catch the ball, you got to stand on the base and catch the ball. Start walking them through it, right? Because once he knows his purpose and the position that he's playing, then he wins the game. And the danger of us in all our lives, if we're honest, a lot of us live life like that. The six-year-olds just learning baseball. We run after every shiny, round thing that runs. And you're confused why you never win at life. Because no one sat down and told you, here's what first base does. Here's what a man of God does. Here's what a woman of God does. Here's what a child of God does. When the ball is hit, here's how we respond. Here's where we go. Here's what you look for. Here's how you train. When the bad things come, y'all hear what I'm saying? There's a whole lot of people, just check out social media for one second. You're a whole lot of people winning at things that don't even matter. My six-year-old finally caught the ball in right field when he was playing first base. He ran through all the kids. and he, I got it. I got it. I said, throw the ball. You're not winning, right? But he thought he was winning because he caught the ball in right field when he was playing. Y'all hear? You got a lot of people celebrating. You didn't win nothing. And we get to the end of our life and we're like, well, I wanted a lot of things that didn't matter. And that's not your purpose in life. God has a purpose for you. And for me, I love what Proverbs chapter 16 says. It says, the Lord has made everything for his purpose. God has made you. You have a purpose. You're not on accident. 
You have a reason to be here. If you're still breathing, come on, you got something to do. And, and the do is determined by the creator. We're called on purpose. I like to say it like this. We're called on purpose for a purpose. On purpose, with intentionality, for a purpose. And there are some of us who are just starting in life, wondering what that purpose is. There are some of us who are just kind of in the middle of life, kind of stuck, feel like you're chasing a ball a little bit. Don't know your purpose. Some of y'all have gotten through a good season of your life, and now you're in a new season. You're about to start a new season, and you're curious about this new purpose. And scared, and there's some anxiety, and there's some fear. Come on. And you don't know what your purpose You're called on purpose for a purpose. So what's the million? This is a million-dollar question. Then what is that? First one today, if you're taking notes, and you should take notes, because note-takers are history makers. I'm just telling you, I know that's cheesy, but it's, just, it's true. So, like, just ri- I would rather you write them down and throw them away as you walk out. You'll still get more in your head if you don't take notes. I'm just telling you. Just do it. First one is this point, first purpose, you were on this earth for relationship. Now, when I said relationship, you, th- you started thinking this way. Your first purpose on earth is not this way. It's this way. It's vertical. It, it, it's, it's, I got to connect bottom up. And if you're saved in here, you're going to think, oh, I got this one good, Pastor. I'm going to check out for a minute. No, no, you need to be reminded of why this, this is important. You might be considering getting, like, becoming a Christian. You're like, I'm considering this thing. I'm in the consideration phase, research and development. Okay, this is good for you, too. You need to know what you're getting yourself into. If you're not saved in here and you were bribed to get here for food, this is good for you, too, because you will wonder. You, sometimes you wonder, like, what are all these people? There's a lot of, lot of, lot of people seem to be loving this person named Jesus. I don't really, I don't get it. I'm going to give you what it, what it is. This is your purpose, is to be in relationship with your heavenly father. Romans chapter 1, this is yet another letter from Paul writing to the church in Rome. He says, dear friends in Rome, God loves you. Everybody say loves. This is important. God loves you dearly, and he has called you. Everybody say called to be his very own per, uh, people. So he loves you. He both loves you and he's called you. That is purpose. He loves you and he called you. He created you and he has you he has a, a reason for you to be here. That is your purpose. You are already, first purpose in life is to be in relationship with God. If you are not in relationship with God, you will always find yourself lacking. You will always be chasing things that don't matter. You will always be winning games that really are not that important. And people will be, and you will eventually be confused at the end of your life, maybe at the beginning of your life, maybe in the middle of your life. You know where midlife crises really come from? Is missing out on intentional purpose. Because what happens is, I see it all the time. You'll see people 40, 50, 60, they will get to the top of the ladder they were trying to like climb up and realize it was leaning against the wrong building. And you will waste many years in your life not understanding, mm, I'm, God loves me, and he's called me, and I have purpose. God wants to be in deep relationship with you. He's not obligated. He's not guilted into it. He doesn't need you. He wants you. Trust me, that's better. The God of the universe wants to be in relationship with his creator. 
It's like a father wanting to be with his kids. A mom wanting to be with her kids. You created them, didn't you? And there's some weird thing. Even when my kids drive me crazy, I want to be with them. I'm like, man, those kids are nuts. Where are my, where my boys? I miss my children. I can't hear my kids. Like a father wants to be his kids, your heavenly father wants to be with you. And when, he, when I say relationship, I mean adoption into a family. Because some of us, and I'm talking about a godly family, because some of us come from family that's not so good. You come from a dad who's not so good. Maybe he wasn't even there. That's not godly family. That's not God the Father. God's always there. God creates a healthy family. He wants you to grow in a relationship with him. We are, I like it, we are his very own people. You didn't join a group. You didn't join a religion. You didn't join a club. You joined a family when you got into a relationship with God. So our relationship with God, now listen, this is important. It's important because our relationship with God is the foundation of healthy relationships with others. So you thought it was just about you. You can't have a healthy this if you don't have a healthy this. Because parents, healthy parents teach and train. I'll give you an example. My sons, the other day, we had a friend, some friends come over at the house. So my boys, I, we knew they were coming. So they knocked on the door. Like, hey, go get the door. And so my kids ran up, no lie. They did this. They opened the door. And they just... And it was quiet for a minute. And like, I was in the kitchen, so I had to peek around the corner to see what, y'all ever do that? You're like, it's too quiet, that was weird. And I look over there, and they're just staring at each other. And I'm like, what? And you know what I said? Because I'm a godly man. Say hi! <laughs> What's wrong with you? Right? They're like, oh, oh, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, I'm sorry. This is embarrassing. We are better parents than this. So you know what we did next, next dinner? Not a lot. I'm not lying. Next dinner, we're sitting around the table. We're talking. It's like, all right, guys, we're going we're gonna to teach you all something. We're going to teach you how to greet people at the door. So mama got up from her door, from her plate, and she went to the door. She went outside, and she knocked on the door. I said, go answer the door. They walked up, and they opened the door and did the same thing. I'm like, okay, so, so I had to walk over. Hey, you open the door. Hi, we're so glad to see you. Welcome, smile, because some of y'all need to learn to smile. I promise you, I preach to you every week. You need to learn to smile, and so, you know, you have to smile. Welcome to our home. Come on in. We're so glad to see you. I have to teach them etiquette. I have to teach them boundaries. got to teach them how to do things. I got to teach them, come on, how to, like, actually do things with proper value systems and principles. I got to walk them through all that stuff. Dad teaches them that. So that when they have a relationship here, it's been determined by the relationship here. And that's why some of us are so frustrated because your dad wasn't there. Right? You're like, man, I wish I had a dad who would have done that. And you had to learn that on your own. And so you might have had to figure that out. But healthy families, come on. They get that from their pops. They get that from their mom. They understand because teaching and training is found in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's important that we understand the vertical because it affects the horizontal. So in the time I have left, I'm going to give you four, four benefits in knowing God. Four benefits in knowing God. And I don't got a timer up there, so I don't know where I'm at, so we'll see how far I go. 
We'll just figure out what it is. Four benefits in knowing God. Four benefits in knowing God. Number one is this. Here's why you should do it. We get to embrace acceptance and not rejection. We get to embrace acceptance and not rejection. Everybody say acceptance. Romans, again, yet this letter from Paul, he says, By faith we have been made acceptable to God. And now because of our Lord Jesus Christ, we live in peace with God. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 says, If God says his chosen one are acceptable to him, he can, how can anyone bring charges against him? Or can anyone condemn them? No, indeed. And I find it funny that Paul would say that, and I feel acceptable until somebody in life rejects me. Right? Because I'm sitting in your seat, you're like, well, that's great, Pastor. Thanks for that. But I live in reality. You can live in the Bible. I live in reality. And I know I'm acceptable to God sometimes, but whenever somebody, until somebody rejects me, until I get to the college, Come on, what, they even have, they call it that. The what? The rejection letter. Until I ask someone out on a date and they look at my face and say, I have to wash my hair. I'm busy. Right? Or when you get passed over for promotion. Or you aren't invited to the party. Or your older kids won't come over. It doesn't matter. What it is, it's still rejection. And when those things happen, you start with rejection. It's like a path. It's the path of rejection. The path of rejection inevitably leads you to depression. You start with rejection. You feel rejected. Then you feel ashamed because you start thinking, man, I cannot believe they didn't want to do that with me. I thought I was good. When the shame ultimately leads you to anxiety because then you're like, anxiety is like, well, what did I do wrong? 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 Was it me? Did I have my hair like that? Did I say something wrong? Did I put something on social media? Am I not that good of a friend? Did she say, think my hair was bad? Y'all hear it, y'all, right? This is only me. And that anxiety, because you can't figure it out, you always ask questions. You know what anxiety does? Anxiety makes you ask questions you can never get answers to. And so because you never get answers to them, you feel hopeless and defeated. And what does that lead you to? Ultimately, depression. Do you see it? So not having acceptance in my life as a core value and understanding unconditional acceptance Men will ultimately allow rejection to rule my life. And the benefit of a Christian is that un- unconditional acceptance. I'm so grateful that I'm accepted by God. You want to know why? Because it has nothing to do with me. And sometimes I treat God like he's a boss, like I did something wrong and then I'm fired. Right? But he's not a boss. I just told you that. What is he? He's a father. And I don't know about you, but if you have kids... I'll give you a question. Food for thought. If you're a parent in here, how many parents I got? Touch them, Scott. You're a parent. All right. Welcome to the club. We're all hanging on by a thread. If you're a parent in here, is there anything your kid can do to make you not love them? It's not a rhetorical question. No. You should say that. Why? Because they're your kids. I told my son the other day, I said, I always ask him, I said, hey, dude, hey, son, come here, come here, come here. I don't care who it is. I just warm around the door. Is there anything you can do to make me not love you? No, dad. Are you sure? <laughs> and they always go. And they say, no, no, daddy, nothing. I said, that's right, nothing. I said, what if you tell me you don't like me? What if you tell me you hate me? What if you try to hurt me? You think I'm not going to love you? No, 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 daddy. No, no, daddy. No matter what. That's how your heavenly father looks at you. 
Because it ain't based on who they are. Because I defined who they were. You're, you're my son. You're my daughter. Come on. It's who you are. You got, you're accepted already. God's acceptance is not based on who I am. God's acceptance is based on whose I am. I'm, I'm, I'm God's kid. And because I'm God's kid, that's a revelation for some. Because some of you still treat God like he's your boss. And you, you run from him when you sin. And you're like, if he finds out what I did. Bad news. He already knows. <laughs> it's God. He knows it. And you're like, but if he knows, he, doesn't, he won't love me. Oh, he already loved you before that. And, and this helps us with rejection, not by eliminating it. It helps us with rejection by um, giving us something to do with it. You see what I'm saying? We think acceptance eliminates rejection. It doesn't. It gives us something to do with rejection. We, we're able to go, no, no, okay, I got it. I, I was just rejected. It doesn't define me. Now, 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 because I'm fully accepted by God, I can still stand. By the way, that's how you stand for biblical truths in your life. Because you'll run from biblical truths when somebody comes up and talks to you about, pick a category that you want to get offended by right now. Pick one. Pick one. And when you stand up for what the word of God says, you can't do that. Hey, you, you can't do that unless I know I'm fully accepted by God, so I'm okay with being rejected by you. I'm fully accepted by God. I'm okay with you. The culture might reject me. I'm okay with that. I don't want to be that. I mean, I'm like, I'm not trying to be. I'm not a jerk about it. But I'm okay with me and you not seeing eye to eye because Jesus, he loves me regardless of me. And I don't know about you, that's good for me. Number two, number two, number two. We can confidently bring God anything. We can confidently bring God. Romans chapter eight, we're talking about the benefits of knowing God, getting into a relationship with God. We can confidently bring God anything. You can bring God anything. Romans chapter eight says, those who are led by God's spirit are God. There it is, there it is. Look at, look at that word. God's what? His children. For the spirit of God has given you, does not make you what? You ain't no slave. You ain't no worker. Uh-uh. You're not part of no club. Saying a club with rights. It's a family with responsibilities. And so that you're not that person that caused you to be afraid. Instead, the Spirit makes you what? God's children. And so then in Hebrews, in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says, then let us approach the throne of grace with what? There's our word. Confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help of our time in need. When I know I'm a child of God, I can bring any need, every need I have with confidence and boldness. Some of us, you need to get that revelation. I was, I walked up to my room or I was I, at night. It's not my room. Uh, my, my kids my, have my two little ones. They stay in the same room together. They have cool bunk beds. They have this bathroom and it's their bathroom. And um, I walked up there because I was putting them to bed and, and I walked into their bathroom, and on the bathroom countertop, there was um, mouthwash everywhere. Just colored mouthwash everywhere. Green color, just everywhere. And I was like, what in the name? And I said, sons, come, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. What is this? What is this? You know what I'm saying? Do you, does anybody have these conversations other than me with their kids? 
Like, tell me what you were thinking. Why? Just why? And they're like, well, Dad, we, uh, we tried to have some mouthwash. I said, clearly that's the case. And we, we spilled a little bit, and then we tried to wipe it up with the towels. And then it got worse, and we just left it. And I said, when were you planning on telling Dad this? And they said, well, never. Never. And I said, why didn't you come up and tell Dad what happened? They said, because we didn't want you. We thought you would get mad. We thought you'd get mad. And I was thinking about that. I was like, I think I'm like that with God. I've done stuff wrong before. And you're like, I should bring it to God. And instead, what I try to do is I try to fix it myself. And it only makes matters worse. Can I get a, a healthy amen from anybody else who's done that before? Oh, okay. So, so the human condition is to try to fix it yourself. And, and, and that's what you do when you're a servant. But when you're a son, when you're a daughter, you do something wrong. You say, Lord, I, actually, you are the only person who can help me in this. You're the only person who can fix the mess. You're the only person who can walk with me. This is important because this is the thing that stagnates our relationship with the Lord. It's what keeps us from him. So it's, a, it's what I call the sin cycle. And, and I, I kind of put it up here because, like, what happens is we sin, mouthwash, right? Which leads us to shame because you're like, oh, man, I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I did that. Whatever sin it is, you put, pick it in your mind. Which one's yours? Well, you have a sin that you can't get out of? Anybody? Anybody got a sin? Do you get it? Yeah? Oh, okay, okay, yeah. It's all different. So you got shame. You know, oh, God, I can't believe I did it. I can't. I should be. I should have known. I should, come on, when am I going to stop doing this? And that shame ultimately leads you to hide. That's what you do. We run from God. Like my kids, oh, well, we're going to hide it. We're not going to say anything. We're not going to talk about it. Like God don't see everything all the time, everywhere, in every situation. But we're going to hide. We're gonna, oh, God. We just won't bring it to God. We're just not going to bring it to God. And by the way, you can't hide from God. It's keeping yourself from him. He still sees you, but he's not going to force relationship with you. So you can run from him. So we hide. And hiding ultimately leads us to drifting. Because the longer you're away from God, the less relationship you have with God. It's like you being married and you never talking to your spouse. You would, you would drift. Hello. You would drift. And what's funny about drifting... <laughs> You know, it's funny about drifting when you're away from God. It makes you sin more. It gives you more opportunity to sin. That's why I always tell people because they're bad people coming up telling me all the time. Pastor, just tell them about sin. You tell them that it's a sin. Tell them. You tell them it's a sin, they'll stop doing it. And I'm like, do you sin? Sure, I'm human. Everybody sins. Did you know it was a sin? Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I, mean, I knew it was a sin. Then why didn't you stop doing it? Oh, so knowledge of sin doesn't keep you from sinning. Really? It's kind of like what the Bible says. What keeps us from sinning? Relationship with Jesus. How do you have a relationship with Jesus? You don't drift. You don't walk away. You don't run and hide. How do you not have shame? You have a relationship with the God the Father who you see yourself as a kid. Y'all see? It's in reverse. 
And you can stay close to him and have confidence with him. Confidence breaks the sin cycle. So bring any needs. Bring any issues. Bring all your sin. Bring all your problems. Bring all your doubts. Bring all your pains. Bring all your issues. Bring them all to God and say, I need you to fix it. I need you to fix it. We tried to clean up the, 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 the mouthwash with the towel. It didn't work. It everywhere. And... Uh, the God who I serve will help you. So, can I just highlight something about sin real quick? Some of us have believed the lie that God punishes you for sin. You know why God hates sin? Because sin punishes you for sin. God doesn't want you to sin because sin hurts you. If I cheat on my wife, that hurts me. God doesn't hurt me for that. Y'all see what I'm saying? If, if I'm unkind to my neighbor, if I'm not generous, if I'm, if I'm a sinful person, it hurts me. And I don't know about you, but I'm a dad. I don't want my kids to get hurt. So therefore, I don't want them to sin. And confidence breaks the pattern of sin. Number three, number three. That was better than you all amen. That was better. All right, number three. Um, we have peace and pain. This is the benefit of having a relationship with God. We have peace and pain. Romans chapter 8, 28 says, and we know that all things, and all things, everybody say all things, all things, good work, God works for the good of those who love him. All things is important. Who's been called according to his what? Oh, there it is again. Purpose. So because I have a relationship with God, I know he can work all things to my benefit, not just good things, bad things too. So one of the benefits of just being in relationship with him and having a relationship with God and being on this earth, I know I'm on this earth to have a relationship with God, is knowing he can actually work all things for my good and I can have peace and pain. But the only way you have peace and pain is you have to see peace correctly. you got to see peace correctly. Because I've talked to Christians, godly Christians, people who've been in church for a long time, religious folk, people who say stuff like, hey, brother, how are you? I'm like, brother, this is weird. We're, uh, brother, y'all hear what I'm talking about? And they believe Peace is absence of issues, absence of pain. That's the worldly view. Godly peace is God's presence in pain. This is fundamental. You have to catch this because good Christian folks still believe the opposite. They believe, we believe. In fact, pastors have probably taught good messages that made it sound like if you give your life to God, you'll never feel another painful moment in ever, ever, never, ever, never. In my experience, that ain't happened. So then why have God in your life? Why be in a relationship with him? Because you can have peace and pain. Well, how do I have peace and pain? Got to see peace correctly. Okay, well, it's peace then based on what God in the Bible says. You, you, you and I have God in our pain. That's peace to God. That's peace to a Christian. So an unexpected bill, I can have peace in that because I know God's with me. A friend dies, passes away, suddenly, in that pain, I can have unexpected peace because I know God is with me. I have a health problem that rises up. Come on, am I touching anybody's life right now? And I'm like, man, I didn't see that coming. I can have peace in that. And you're like, you ever talk to somebody who you know their life is going down the hill? The hill. Rolling down it. Boom, boom, boom. And you're like, bro, I need to talk to you. You need, a, like, you need some, you need a hug? And they'd be like, I'm good. And you're like, and you try to convince them that they're not, <laughs> right? You're like, I think I see more of what you're dealing with. 
they just realized, no, man, I, mm, you don't understand. I got God with me. Mm, mm-hmm. I got God in that financial loss. I got God in that health issue. I got God in that friend who passed away unexpectedly. I got God in my unexpected bill. No, I got God in my marriage issues. It's not that I got away from it. I just got some weird kind of peace, the peace that passes all understanding. Even Paul says in Romans, he says, not only that, we'd rejoice in our sufferings. You ever read the Bible and go, that was the dumbest thing I've ever seen? Because Paul says stuff that you'd be like, that don't make no sense. I've never, whenever I stub my toe, I've never said, yes, Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. He is able to do, no. I, I stubbed my, no lie, I stubbed my toe last night. I couldn't see. I took my contacts out. It was dark. I got up to do something. I don't even know what I was up for. And I kicked the daylights. I mean, I kicked it like it was a soccer ball. And I was looking for a net. And I'm telling you, I didn't praise the Lord. I might have said his name, but I didn't praise the Lord, you know. And, uh, Hey, nobody does that. What's Paul saying there? He says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know our relationship with God is going to effectively change the outcome. Mm. Mm. Not only does it fix my future, it fix my present. Fix my present. Number four, and I'm done. We worship instead of we worry. This is going to hit somebody. Because some of y'all are considering a relationship with God, and you're like, I don't know why this is going to be, but you worry a lot. Matthew 6 says, so don't worry. This is so good. So don't worry. This is Jesus talking. So don't worry about these things saying, you're like, Jesus, that's easy for you to say, you God. What we eat, what we drink, what we wear. It's amazing though, isn't it amazing? This is like 2,000 year old book and you're like, that stuff still applies right now. (laughs) What am I gonna wear? What am I gonna do? How am I gonna pay that bill? What's my kid gonna say? What do they say to me and me on social media? Is my boss gonna fire me tomorrow? Am I gonna have enough money? Is my health gonna make it? Is my marriage gonna make it? Is my kids gonna stop acting crazy? Come on, am I gonna actually not cut somebody off in traffic so I don't lose it, lose it, lose it? Like I just, we all ask the question. So we worry, we worry. He said, why don't you do that? Don't worry, don't do all those things. The things that, he goes, these things, this is so important. God, this, this wrecked me this week, wrecked me. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. You know what worry is? Worry is pretending you're alone. Worship is knowing you're not. When you worry, you pretend like God's not there. The omnipresent God who is everywhere. The omniscient God who knows everything. God is not smart. He knows everything. There's a difference. The omni, powerful, like he ain't strong. God is all powerful. The omnipotent God. Come on. And when we worry, we're pretending, we're living in a fantasy world, pretending like he ain't there with you. That he don't see your needs. That he don't care about you. I was flying in a plane with my wife. I love to travel. She's my favorite travel partner. And uh, we were sitting in a, a row. 
And uh, you know what's funny? When I get on a plane, I'm always on the plane. I like to I people watch. Anybody people watch a little bit? Just like watch people. And watch as people get on the plane. And I'm already frustrated because I'm not sitting in first class. So, you know, I'm sitting in this second tier area, you know, and I'm just looking at everybody and they're walking by me. And we get up in the plane and we're flying. And we were flying from San Antonio to Los Angeles. Now, I did not stay there. It was on the way to someplace else to so stop judging me. So I'm flying to Los Angeles. And we're, we're flying over. And the guy gets on the over uh, the intercom or whatever. And he says, hey, buckle up. We're going to have some turbulence. I fly pretty regularly. I'm a pretty regular flyer. But I've never gotten used to turbulence. And I don't really care for flying. And so on the plane and starts to bump I'm like then it starts to really bump I'm like and then it starts to like jerk and you ever y'all ever have that happen on a plane where all of a sudden the bottom drops out y'all anybody anybody ever had that please tell me it was okay when it does that I'm just I don't even care who's around me I Scream. And it's not a manly scream. It's like, ah! Ah! And I'm freaking out. Freaking out. I'm holding the console. I'm bracing myself. I start saying the prayers. I start thinking about the church. Like, okay, what happens if I die? How's the insurance going to happen? What are going to go my kids? Did all the things happen? Like, I go there. Instantly, fast forward, and I happen to look over at my wife. <laughs> if I'm lying, I'm dying. I promise you this will happen. She is smiling. <laughs> and she's got the headphones in, and I... I was like, she goes, what, what? And I like, she, you know, and I go, y'all ever do that with somebody? Yanka, and she goes, what? I go, we're gonna die. And she goes, oh, oh, we're fine. I said, why aren't you worried? She goes, oh my God sees me. We're all, we're gonna be okay. I go, you don't, you don't, you don't. You don't know. You don't know. I need to be up. I'm thinking I need to be in the cockpit. Right? Let's be honest. Who thinks you can, in those moments, fly the plane better than the pilot? Anybody else? Yeah. You're like, I got to be in the, I know what I'm doing. Have I ever flown a plane? No. But because stuff is moving, I'm worried. My worry moves me to anxiety, and now I'm freaked out, and I think I'm going to die. And I'm trying to convince my wife, who is a fellow believer in Christ, who apparently believes the Bible, I'm trying to tell her and convince her this is the thing that's going to kill us. And she said something. She goes, I'm not worried. I said, why aren't you worried? I'm worried. She goes, well, my God sees me. 
I'm not alone. I may not see him, but I know he's there. You might feel different, but your feelings are not always facts. So I'm going to worship. And she said, this, my little Mexican wife, she goes, thank you, Jesus. You're good. I'm screaming in my mind, you're gone. Because I, I was pretending like God wasn't with me. I was worried. And she worshiped. And she worshiped. And she worshiped. And I, you know what? Our issue is not loving God. It's not. Our issue is not knowing how much God loves you. We think he's forgot us. We think he's busy. We think he doesn't care for us very much. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. He's for you. He wants you to win. He wants you to make it. He cares for you. He loves you. He's with you. He's present in the fire. He wants to be around you. He wants to see you get to the, the end of the race. He wants to see you make it. Your God, my God, the God of the Bible loves you so much. And when you see an all-powerful, all-holy, all-amazing God love a sinful person like us, the only proper response is worship. That's it. So my prayer today, if you haven't gotten it, here's the, here's the thesis. You should be in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the exhaustive list. Those are just the lists that I thought would be helpful to highlight of you moving from not knowing God to knowing God.